South represents the fastest growing quadrant in the country, yet as a culture, it can be as baffling as it is predictable to both those who live here and those who visit. Today, we're going to drill down into the psychology of the South with Dr. Julie Bondanza, a renowned psychologist and Jungian psychoanalyst whose specialty is human development. We'll talk about the collective unconscious of the South, archetypes, and much, much more. Let's dig in. You're listening to Southern Elegies, a weekly podcast devoted to discussing the truth, lies, and misconceptions about the South. I'm your host, Lydia Caffrey Wilbanks. You can find out more about me on my website, southernelegies.com. Let's get started. So welcome, Dr. Bondanza. Well, thank you. It's good to be here with you. So, um, Dr. Bondanza, you you specialize in so many things, not only as a um, psychologist and analytical psychoanalyst. I'd like to take this opportunity to ask you um, about some of your perceptions about the South and specifically about the Southern persona. Interesting. My, I w- want to tell you my very first experience. It was years ago, and I was um, teaching at Gallaudet College, the School for the Deaf, and I was sent down to speak to some teachers at the School for the Deaf. Anyway, I, I did whatever I was doing, whatever I was teaching them about how to teach language arts to deaf kids. And it was, they were so warm. They were so incredibly warm. And when I was finished, of course, they gave me a dinner. They took me to the airport and they gave me this fabulous gift. I mean, I was paid, obviously, but they also gave me this beautiful briefcase. And I came home thinking, well, I've never experienced anything like this. I've taught these classes all over the country. This is my first time to the South. Whoa, these people are truly gracious and warm and grateful and lovely. That was my, my very first experience um, with the South. I mean, I was just probably 35 or something um, and just bowled over. I had no experience of Southerners. I grew up in New York State. Um, so I was very impressed. Now, now I recognize that a persona is a persona and that the Southern persona is charming. I mean, people I know from the South, for example, say sweetie to, to anybody um, that, that they're having a nice interchange with. It could be the grocery store clerk. It could be the person coming to pick up the dog. Um, that they, they just have that way of talking that's sweet and welcoming, but it does not say anything about what's going on inside. It's just a way of being. It's the way that, you know, like the French kiss on two cheeks. I mean, it's just a way of mm-hmm. being with people. Mm-hmm. It, it, it has nothing to do. And, and very different from the North. Because oh, well, in the North, it's very different. I mean, you know, it depends on where in the North you are. I mean, I, I'm often in New York, and in your neighborhood in New York, it's very friendly. 
but it's not oh sweetie it's it's just friendly it's like what's happening with your kids and blah 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 and I like your dog you know it's it's different. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, where, I, I mean, you know, neighbors would yell at one another. You know, everybody was Italian. They yelled and carried on. <laughs> and it was very, very different. There was no sweetie. Sweetie is pretty pervasive in the South, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's very nice. If you're just doing, you know, like something commercial, It's a, it's lovely. But I don't think you should trust that it's really how people feel about you. Can you talk about what you think the collective unconscious is of the South? Oh my, that's such an interesting question. I, I would I this the South has has several, I think, several different ways of thinking, um of, of a kind of a collective um cultural attitude. I mean, part of it is you know, this kind of graciousness that's there. There's also a true distaste and dislike of strangers, of people mm. who really are not in interaction with you but are just walking down the street. There's so many examples um, of, of things like that. It's also, um, I think the collective unconscious is really anti, anti-stranger so that a black person or an Asian person is a stranger and therefore not acceptable because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's what we know that's acceptable. So so things that are alien, I think, are frightening. Um, and there's, there's, you know, there's an attitude, I think, in the collective unconscious of the South that, that there's something about gentility and... Um, that kind of graciousness, but it only belongs in a certain class. The, the, the South has different classes. There's, there's the elite classes, which are very gracious and that kind of thing, at least in an open, open kind of way. And then there's a more working class people who are much rougher and um, much more openly um, against strangers. I think there's a big stranger fear. In the collective conscious of the South, it's an understandable thing because in the rest of the country, Southerners are looked at as odd, as odd, as racist, as not so smart because they talk with such a funny drawl. So I think that that there's understandable um, responses in the South to that kind of overall. I think Dr. Bondance's observations about Southern stranger aversion is extremely apt. I certainly have been guilty of creating exclusive situations, but I've also been seen as the stranger. I grew up in a very clubby world in New Orleans and learned to be a bully at an early age as the result of my slave master father. Eventually, however, my rebellion won out and I courted the role of the outsider by leaving the South for the East Coast. My deep Southern accent caused me so much shame that I actively worked to reduce it. It was only when I returned to the South as a young adult that I understood just how cruel and swift Southerners can be in closing ranks. So much of our culture is defined by clubs, sororities, and fraternities, and not just the Greek kind that it can be hard to see from the inside the emotional distress that it can cause others. 
everyone listening to this podcast has experienced the pain of being an outsider or not let into an inner sanctum or a club or clique we sought. It comes with shame and embarrassment and a host of other emotions like anger and fear at not being enough. And it reminds me of one of my favorite Groucho Marx quotes, that he wouldn't belong to any club that would have him as a member. Let's go back to Julie. How would you characterize the collective unconscious of Southern Black people? Well, I mean, obviously most of them are... um are the result of trauma because they have been slaves. Their ancestors have been slaves and they are continually treated like, like strangers, like less than, I mean, the South has been, at least in my understanding of history, reluctant to allow equality among people, people of color. You know, I mean, and it's an understandable thing that doesn't mean okay. But, you know, it started out with black people as slaves. They were something one owned. They weren't quite people. They belonged to you and you could do as you wished with them. So I think there's remnants of that still in both black and white people of the South. You know, that there's rebelliousness or Uncle Tomism, as it's called, Mm -hmm. black people. And in white people, there's a sense of superiority and you are a stranger and I am better than you. I mean, you know, these are generalizations. Obviously, not all Southerners, either black or white, feel like that. But I think that there's there's undercurrents, Mm -hmm. the leftovers of the trauma of slavery. It was trauma. it's, it's, It's almost impossible. I mean, this is a story that's kind of beside the point. But when I was in training to be a psychologist, when I was in graduate school, there was, it was, there was a lot of human potential stuff around still. And we did one time an exercise, half the people being masters and half the people being slaves, and mm-hmm. then switching. And the behaviors, even as I noted the behaviors in myself, as I was a master, I was nasty. I was not the nice person you know. I was nasty and bossy. And as a slave, I was ridiculously rebellious and very full of anger. It was very interesting and very shocking. Well, your specialty is human development, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, it was, it, I was very shocked at my own behavior in both, in both cases, although I'm closer to being a rebel. Not very close to being really bossy. My husband might disagree. (laughs) (laughs) That is so interesting. And obviously it really stood out in your mind. Yeah, it very much stood out in my mind. Because I think it's the first time that I understood that there were parts of myself I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was probably about 32. You know, I was Mm -hmm. was young. Mm -hmm. Wow, that is really interesting. That would be a, a good exercise for a lot of people in the South. Yes, it, re- yes, it really would. It, because, because it puts you, I, I mean, as long as you're willing to let yourself feel what you feel, you feel, you feel the, feel the stuff, you play the stuff. Well, from a cultural standpoint, there is so much um, inherited in, in being a descendant of a, of a slave. Right through, of course, it's the a trauma. trauma. Intergenerational trauma is tr- is transmitted two ways. 
It's transmitted by behavior that, you know, the way people behave, but it is also transmitted what's called epigenetically. Epigenetically is as behaviors happen, this does not happen in the gene itself, but something called a methyl cell attaches to the gene that holds a particular behavior. And that methyl cell affects the way the gene gets expressed. And that's for any kind of trauma. That's right? for that's for, for any kind of behavior. Any kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not necessarily trauma, but for sure trauma. But that's one way trauma is transmitted. And I mean, it's also the way, you know, parental behavior is transmitted or, you know, how, how to be a teenager. You know, it all gets mm-hmm. transmitted to, to epigenetically as well as modeled. So the sort of the slave master and the slave mentality gets handed down through generations. Exactly. Exactly. That doesn't mean it's unchangeable that a person who has those behaviors can't find them and and try to eradicate them and work with them. Um, It's not inevitable, but without consciousness, it's kind of inevitable. Dr. Bondanza's point about inherited behavior rings especially true for me. As a descendant of slave owners, the slave master mentality and white supremacist behavior was alive and well in my family, handed down through generations, and is still active today. I've spent decades in therapy trying to dig out from underneath it, most of the time feeling like I was boxing with the ghost because it's so hard to isolate and remedy. Resma Menachem's New York Times bestselling book, My Grandmother's Hands, beautifully chronicles the trauma of white supremacy, which most Southerners acknowledge, and how the generational effect of slavery has impacted all of us in one way or another. His recipe for reconciling it mirrors Dr. Bondanza's statement, that consciousness is the only way to heal and reverse the stubborn legacy of inherited behavior. As you are a Jungian psychoanalyst, Can you talk a little bit about Jung's concept of consciousness and maybe some of his other tenets? I mean, I I can say that, you know, that we have three parts, a persona, which is that which we present to the world, an ego, which is basically our consciousness, what we think about ourselves, what we know about ourselves. And then there's a whole level of unconscious behavior, some of which is collective some of which is archetypal, which just means that it belongs to all human beings. And if we want to become, and a union idea is to become whole, then we watch to see what new pieces of self are showing up. They show up in dreams. They show up in our reactions to other people. They show up. And then we work with them. And so eventually the consciousness grows until eventually you're really being led not just by ego, but by something deeper called the self. But that's that's a long ways from most of us. I mean, we're just growing in in terms of understanding parts of ourselves that that are there. And we, we all have all sorts of possibilities in us. We have an inner slave master. Obviously, I behaved like that when I did that exercise. I mean, I couldn't have behaved like that if it didn't exist inside me someplace. But it's an archetype. 
So what you are saying is that the only way to change behavior that has a lasting effect is to become conscious of that behavior? That's exactly what I'm saying, Lydia, is becoming mm-hmm. conscious is, is really is really the only way there will ever be any kind of like peace in the world and, and decent human relationships as we, as we understand. I mean, you know, if you have the opportunity to, to feel some, to find in yourself that which is hated by the rest of society, that will change you. That will grow you to, to not just have compassion, but to understand you know that deeply. You also know what it's like to be a slave master or a Nazi. It's a very profound realization. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's a very profound, and it's not easily, it's not easily attained. I mean, I think it was easier back in the days when there was the human potential movement and people were trying on things like that. Now people go to therapy, but many therapists, many therapies don't, don't look for that kind of thing. They just try to get people to adjust to their lives. Which isn't a bad thing, you know. So, so once a racist is not always a racist. No, absolutely it, not. Right. People can change. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's just recognizing yourself as, as um, beholden to someone else's rule. Mm-hmm. Especially when it's inherited. Yeah, well, when it's, when it's, in, it's all inherited. All of us in America have some connection to that i mean even those my ancestors didn't come until the early 20th century but it doesn't matter we live in a racist where racism is a huge part of the society you pick up on it you have to struggle so my last question for you is about the archetypes of the south or what you think is the strongest and most prevalent archetype in the south the archetype of the ruler would be maybe stronger in the South than it would be in a working class neighborhood. Although if you're, if you are the result, you know, if you are low on the totem pole, there is going to be a push to make yourself bigger, to connect to the archetype of the powerful one of the authority. It's going to, there's a push to kind of become whole. So, so, you know, it depends on what's happening in the South. If, if you grew up in an atmosphere in which there was tremendous belief that white people were superior to black people, that, would, that archetype of the ruler, of some people are rulers and some people are not, some people are peasants and are forced to belong to the ruler and obey the ruler, that that archetype would be strong, I, I would think. That 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 given given that some people were sold, that people were sold, that people weren't allowed to keep families. Uh, I mean, and that didn't happen in every slave owning place, but it happened plenty enough. So that so that deep in the psyche is some right I, that I have a right to be better, and in the other, I have no right. So I have to build that up. And it comes out like an, any teenager often as rebellion. I mean, because it's, it's new. It's not an entitlement. It's something you have to work for. 
But no, I, but that makes sense. But I, it does make sense, doesn't it? It does. I mean, because I don't, I, you know, I have plenty of people of color in my practice. And I, I began as a therapist working in a part of Washington, D.C. that's all black. It's Anacostia, D.C. And I felt absolutely at home in, in, that, in that environment, I think because I came from a working class Italian family. Um, I didn't feel much different, and I was totally accepted. And I think because of, at a feeling level, I, I understood what it was to be the under, underdog. So do you think that because the archetype of the ruler is so strong in the South, that it's the basis of racism in the South? I think that that would be right. I mean, is that some people are rulers and some people are not, and that that's just the way things are. And, and I think that that would make the development of compassion and empathy a task for people who were born and born into a system in which they were the ruler. And just as if you were the slave, what you would have to do is, is develop the piece of yourself that was in charge of yourself. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's just interesting. And, and you can, you can see as you look around you, how, how those things are in process and that you see something like, like what happened with Trayvon Martin. Mm-hmm. You know, where a jury decided it was an okay thing to do, to kill a stranger, because you had an idea he might be dangerous. That, that's, that, that's just the beginning of a process. But peop, many people observing that found that untenable. And that will start the process in, the, in those people. And maybe in the people that saw that, you know, the, the newspapers, media has a big effect. All right. Well, Jewel, is there anything else that you want to say to me about the South? I don't feel like I'm an expert on the South by any means. I've read a lot of Southern literature. I know some Southern people, and I and I have read a lot of books. It's many Southern authors who are fabulous. The South, the South literary tradition is pretty fabulous. Yes, it is. Well, on that note, then. Okay, Annie. Um, I want to thank you so much for um, sharing your thoughts with me today. You're and, welcome. Won't you and, call me sweetie? Yes, a sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I, sweetheart. I, I just caught things from you. I just called you honey. There you go. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right, bye sweetheart. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye, Okay. Bye, Joel. <laughs> I would guess that most, if not all, of my listeners would agree that the archetype of the ruler is especially strong in the South and is largely responsible for the lines that are constantly drawn. But you don't have to be a Southerner to know the slave master's voice that drives us toward a goal or that slavish pursuit of something or someone. But connecting those inner voices which are so often unconscious, to exterior behavior is hard work, particularly for those more comfortable feeling superior than powerless. To her point, knowing what it feels like to be powerless is what spawns empathy and compassion, especially when it comes to our understanding and appreciation of our shared history. Thanks so much for listening. 
I hope you'll come back next week. Bye now.